have a Bible, take it, it's yours. It's a best-selling book in all the world. A, bi- a man whose Bible's falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. People say it's a fairy tale written by men. I always laugh at that because I realize you haven't read it. It's the only book in the world that speaks beyond the space-time continuum. Peter said the more sure word of prophecy. Cover to cover, it's the most amazing book in the world. I'm going to share with you this morning why it's so significant. Because 1 Peter uh, is what we're going to be studying. 1 Peter is in the New Testament, kind of towards the end, almost near the book of Revelation. 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1. This epistle, epistle is a big word that just means letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Peter. He wrote uh, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And he wrote it to a church, listen, he wrote it to a church that was being persecuted. We're in a postmodern culture, we're in a postmodern world. The church is going to come under heavy persecution. It's just a a given. Um, But but here's the point that, that, that Peter wants to establish. Because, listen, in a world that abandons God... All of us have something in common. We have a need to hope. What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, it's Sunday, football, what else? (laughs) What gets you out of bed in the morning? Every human being is created with a need to hope. We have to hope. When you lose hope, you take your life. And others with you. And so, Peter is seeing the church being persecuted. They're, they're under massive persecution. Peter himself would be crucified upside down. He'd be killed. He's watched his buddy, he had Peter, James, and John. He's watched Peter, excuse me, he's watched James uh, as the first martyr. And, and Peter every day is under threat of death. They're saying, you better shut up or we're going to kill you. And, and Peter is, is dead set to continue preaching the gospel. And he's writing to a church that's scared to death. And by the way, faith overcomes fear. Faith overcomes fear. Second Timothy, uh, Second Timothy says, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Second Timothy 1.7. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So, so Peter wants to encourage the church to overcome fear. And, and so we're going to begin the study. First Peter uh, chapter 1. I, I covered two verses last week, and I am going to turn it on today. I'm going to cover one verse. So <laughs> would you stand for the reading of the word of the Lord? Although I'm going to read five verses, I'm only going to cover one. Bless you, yes. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. We covered that last week. If you didn't hear it, get a copy or go online. And then he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, everyone please say mercy, Mercy. has begotten us again to a living hope. Please say living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. And Lord, everybody hopes in something, but you have seen fit this day to define to this room that there is a distinct difference in your hope because you declare that it is a living hope. And I pray that nobody would leave this room without taking hold of that living hope. I pray your blessing upon every heart present. 
Minister, Lord, please. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. I, uh, I'm, I, this is going to be my last Sunday for three Sundays. I'm going to be gone. I told a lot of you guys, and, and I'm, I'm heading to Uganda, um, and I'm traveling there because I'm going to do a pastor's conference. And as a lot of you know, uh, Rawl and Ingrid Fiedler uh, were our missionaries there, and they've moved to Indiana because Ingrid uh, ha- had cancer, breast cancer. She's doing great, um, at least last I heard. And... Um, and so the church in Uganda is a little in disarray, just kind of, where did the Fiedlers go kind of thing? Because within a short amount of time, they packed up and moved out. And Rawl had a huge role in that church. And Ugandans struggle with people coming and going. Americans say, hey, you're my neighbor. I've lived next to you for 12 years. Don't know your name. That's not how they operate in Uganda. Everybody's really tight. And, they, and so when uh, Pastor Craig called me and said that... Uh, Ray Bentley couldn't make it to the pastor's conference. He said, a number of the folks in Uganda asked for you. And and then uh, he turned on the guilt by saying, um, you know, the, 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 the Fiedlers left. And, you know, we're all, okay, I'm coming. So, and I have to tell you, I was there in May. I, I love going over and ministering. But I have to just be candid with you. I, I hate traveling. And I hate flying. And I hate going to Uganda traveling. I love when I'm there. I love when I come home. I hate all the part in between. Every aspect of it I hate. It begins with the flights at 155 tomorrow. You have to be there an hour early, which means you have to be there at 1255, which means you have to kind of bank for traffic. And depending if you're flying out of Burbank to go to Sacramento or you're flying out of LAX to go to Uganda, you have to kind of calculate. And if you're going to go to Burbank, you can go the 23 to the 118 and then come the back route through there. Or you can go the 101 to, you know, the 134 just before you get to the 134 because it's a straighter shot. But then you're kind of calculating traffic and the like. And then if you're going to go to LAX, you just have to go 101 to 405. You could do the coastal route and then come up through Lincoln Boulevard. But if you go 101 to 405, if you get to, you know, Valley Circle Boulevard, that's when you start to hear the traffic. And then you think, oh, Oh my goodness, we're all in trouble. And then as you start to go up the grade, and if you, traffic doesn't clear by the time you get to the Getty Museum, it's all hell. And, uh, and so this is, how, this is how your trip to Uganda begins. You're getting in the car, and you say, I hope there's no traffic. I hope there's no traffic. And then the other one, my favorite, is when you, you get there, I hope the lines aren't long at TSA. And then, and then I hope that it's not a full flight. That's great. Six foot two, 200 pounds. <laughs> fitting in one of those seats on a nice 15-hour flight. Meh. Meh. And it's usually, you know, in the middle of enormous people. And I'm in the... My favorite is between two crying babies with pink eye. That was my favorite flight. <laughs> I got off the flight. Hi, honey, I'm home. I'm in quarantine now. I've had some wonderful, wonderful flights. But you always say, I hope that the flight's not full. I hope the flight's not full. What are we saying when we say these hope things? We're, we're saying, um, I, I have, I have I'm, I'm, I'm wishing with a, a sense of uncertainty. That's the world's hope. I'm wishing with a sense of uncertainty. Otherwise, if, 
it was never any good and the flight was always crowded and you always had a middle seat and there was always traffic and you were always going to be late and you were always going to miss your flight and TSA was always going to... You just didn't want to get out of bed. and I, I'm not doing it anymore. <laughs> hope in the world... Listen, hope in the world's mindset always comes with a sense of uncertainty. And that's what drives us. We're creatures of hope. It's such a powerful, listen, it's such a powerful aspect in the human condition that a president of the United States was elected based on that one term. He studied under a man named Robert Maddox, who's a social activist, who understood the paradigm, he understood the dimensions of hope. And as he started to formulate this concept of hope, he talked about taking adversity in the form of coal and forming it and fashioning it in the form of a diamond, which is hope. And any leader can give a system of hope. Any leader can design this this theory of hope, this phenomenon of hope. And what that leader now becomes is a change agent. He is a change agent and he manages change. And he does it, he does it by creating what he calls a hopescape. A hopescape. Awesome. Will's going to hell in a handbag. Oh, no. Mm -mm. Let me tell you something. It's all going to be good. Hope and change. I'm not so certain that we got the hope. We had it for a season. Came with uncertainty. We certainly got change. But here's what happens with the world's system of hope. It creates cynicism. Disappointment. We become jaded. The next guy comes along going, I'm running on the basis of hope. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. We had that last time, and all we know is uh, taxes went up. My health premiums went up. uh, I don't have the doctor you said I was going to have. I don't don't know what you're talking about. And all I know is everything's more expensive, and, and everybody I know is unemployed. Some of you are upset with my political position. I thought we all lived in California. That's what I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. So hope removes, in a sense, if it's done correctly, it can remove despair. And that's why these people come out and they have this, these visions of grandeur and they, they create this, this landscape, this hopescape, so you can begin to believe in it and buy into it. And, and this despair uh, is all of a sudden lifted because the opposite of despair is hope. And we're all created, we're all creatures that long to see something above and beyond ourselves. And we always wake up with that expectation. There's got to be something more. There's got to be. This can't be it. And if it is, I'm tired of it. And you know why? It's because the Bible says that we've been created subject to vanity. That we are creatures that have been created with the ability to worship. We worship We always have to worship something, but we only find our fulfillment in worshiping God. We can worship at the altar of football, and it's fun, but we become like that which we worship. If you worship money, you become cold, lifeless. If you worship football, I don't know, you you become like that which you worship. What, brutal? I don't know, whatever. You just follow the, 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 the prospects of it all. But in this idea, in this idea, God has created a subject to vanity because in him is the fullness of joy. And only in God are we, are we satisfied. But for us to let go requires faith. The old Persian proverb is, faith is a bridge, but hope leads us over. Faith is a bridge, but hope leads us over. Now, 
whenever we take the world's, whenever we have faith in the world and, and we have hope in the system, we always get to the other side of the bridge and we go, this really wasn't what I signed up for. And we're always left dissatisfied and jaded and cynical. But if you ever come to a place where you embrace the Lord and you put your life in his hands, every one of us, before we can walk over that bridge of faith by hope, we have to realize that we have to surrender everything. He has to be in charge. And then what that requires with all of us is humility. Because every one of us has to give up something because it separates us from God. Every one of us. And, and, and here's my favorite. Every single person in this room, our sexuality has to, has to be put on the line. It doesn't matter if you're heterosexual, homosexual. It doesn't matter. Your sexuality has to be put on the line because heterosexual and homosexual, it's this idea of lust. It's this idea of, of not being um, uh, uh, faithful, not being pure. And, and saying that before the Lord and walking in that purity before God. And, and that is that area where you say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you with, with my entire being. Even with sexuality, you think about it. What, why did God give us sex? It's an expression of intimacy. Physical, emotional, and spiritual. And it's that, it's that connection. And, and you, you, you see this as God defines it in our life. And that's that relationship with the Lord. And you, you, all of that has to be laid out before him. That's why the Bible says that they were naked and unashamed. This idea of complete honesty and, and transparency before God Almighty. And this, this concept of hope, it's a sad one. Because when you look at, at, at this, this audacity of hope that has left us cynical and jaded and frustrated with the world around us, we struggle. And, and any, any hope in the world has a sense of despair, a sense of uncertainty. And I, I, I like what, I don't like what he wrote but I think it wraps up the world's view of it. Benjamin Franklin said, he who feeds on hope starves to death. That's the world view of hope. He who feeds on hope starves to death. That's true for the world. And here's why. It's a dead hope. It's a dead hope. It's a dead hope. Look at the passage. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a what? Uh, That sounded pathetic. Who's begotten us again to a... Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. From the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Huh. A living hope. A living hope. You know who wrote this epistle? It was Peter. This guy knew what it was like to have his hope crushed. He walked... Jesus walked up on the shores of Galilee on the 13th to the 22nd of October. I'm going to be in Israel. I'm going to be in Gennesaret, around the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to be right there where Jesus walked up, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers, sons of Zebedee. They were Zebedee. They were fishermen. And Peter was a fisherman. He set up and he said, he walks up, Jesus walks up. He says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Come follow the rabbi. 
And every family was like, oh, the rabbi, great. Only the stupid kids have to go into the father's profession, but the smart ones get to follow the rabbi. And here Peter, James, and John are like, dody, 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 we're fishermen. Because no rabbi would take them. And Jesus walks along and goes, hey, come follow me. And dad's like, go. He's not the sharpest rabbi because he's calling you, but go. And Peter dropped everything and followed the Lord. So did James and John. And for three years, he watched him raise the dead and the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. They watched Jesus walk on water. They watched Jesus feed thousands with a handful of fish and a few loaves of bread. They watched him calm the raging sea with a spoken word, peace be still. They witnessed all of that. They watched him arise long before the sun would come up uh, and go to a solitary place and commune with the Father and watch as his private life of prayer was a result of his public life of power. Peter watched this. Peter was endeared to the Lord. He put all of his hope. He put the, 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 the payment plan on the fishing boat on hold. And at the end of three years, they're having dinner up in the upper room. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter goes, not me. I'm all in. I am all in. They may, they may betray you, but I'll go to prison and I'll even die for you. I am all in. At which point Jesus says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like we, I've prayed for you. And before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, what are you talking about? Lord, don't, don't you remember don't you remember up at Caesarea Philippi? That's one of my two favorite places to go in Israel. I love going to the Valley of Elah, and I love going to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, up in the north, where the Dan River comes into the headwaters of the Jordan, and it's lush, and it's beautiful in a deserty area. You go up there, the trees, and the water's cool and refreshing, and there's a breeze in the air. It's just lovely. And you get up there, but the coolest thing is every single society or culture that's come into Israel has set up a temple to their god or goddesses. And they're everywhere. And they're, they're all rotting and they're all stoned. Fingers are missing. Everywhere. And over to the right, if you're standing looking at this, the scenery, over to the right is this cave, and they call it the Gates of Hell, Hades. And that's where they put sacrifices. And that's what, that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 16. And so you can imagine the apostles are all up there. They're up at Caesarea Philippi. They're enjoying the sights. And they've got every god and goddess you can imagine. And people are worshiping all of their deities. You've got Aphrodite, which is a god of sexuality. And stuff's going on in, over there. You know? And John's 18 years of age. And he's like, wow, that's really crazy. That's cool. What, Jesus? No, I'm listening. Go ahead. Oh, okay, you didn't see that. But I, very clear to me. Peter's about 25. He's still, you know, drawn to all the stuff going on around him. You got the God of Bacchus. You got Aphrodite. Bacchus is the God of alcohol. People are worshiping over there at that altar. And it's just chaos. Every religion is represented. And at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? One of them goes, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Some say Jeremiah. And others say just a prophet. And then Jesus says, well, who do, who do you say that I am? At this moment, Peter, love this guy. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father in heaven. Blessed are you. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. And then he goes on to say in, in, in Matthew 16, he says, and I will give you the keys, everyone say keys, 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind in heaven will be bound on earth or loose, it will be loosed. He says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. Does anyone have any set of keys? I want somebody, somebody with a large set of keys. Uh, come on, come on, bring them. You're like, oh, I got them. All right, what do we, what do we have on this, this ring? You got the car key. What are you driving these days? A truck. <laughs> House key, safety deposit box. I'll check that one on. Just, these open up things, yes? And, and in the first service, a lady had a key to the, the dental office. And in the dental office, they got, you know, gold for the gold fillings. Dr. Bob said he had a key to the church. We got copy machines. We got all, there's like stuff in there you can snake. Why do they give you keys? Because you get authority. With authority comes responsibility. You can let people into the building. You're the gatekeeper. You're the gatekeeper. He gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. You have the keys of the kingdom. And here's, here's, Peter's like, that's cool. Thank you. Because I said you're the Christ, the son of the living God. We're all in. And, and now, shortly thereafter, Peter's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He sees Moses, Elijah, and he sees Jesus. He says, let's build a tabernacle and we can do these. And, we can, and the voice in heaven says, be quiet. This is my son. Hear him. Basically, God the Father said, shut up, Peter. Okay, I'm sorry. And then Jesus would go on to say to Peter, listen, I'm going to be crucified. He says, no, no, you can't be crucified. And at that moment, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Satan. So he goes from being, you know, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven, you are it, Peter. I'm giving you the keys. Now you're Satan. So Peter is this roller coaster. Does anyone feel like that? I am a roller coaster. That's Peter. Okay, so check this out. Don't lose me. So Peter now says to Jesus in the upper room where they go to have dinner together and they're breaking bread. Matthew 16, he he called Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God, right? Peter's got this dialed in. He's got the keys to the kingdom. They're having a supper together. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter goes, listen, it ain't me. I'm the guy in Matthew 16. Lord, I'm all in. I believe in you. I have forsaken the boat, my father's business, and I've walked with you for three years. Everything I am is in. I'm not giving up on you. At what point Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me. No, 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 no. I'll go to jail for you. I'll even die. These people will forsake. I'm not going to do that. Peter, Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. I've prayed for you. You're going to be restored, but you're going to screw up. No. And as we studied last week, this is what happened. Jesus is apprehended in the Garden of Gethsemane. They beat the tar out of him. Isaiah said they pulled the beard out of his face. He was beaten so badly his own mother couldn't recognize him, right? And from a distance, Peter locks eyes with Jesus. After Peter denies Jesus a third time in front of a 13-year-old girl, she says, aren't you one of them? I can tell by your accent. He goes, I swear to God, I don't know him. And the rooster crows. Jesus' face swollen, his eyes puffy, beaten by the Roman centurions. Locks eyes with Peter. Scripture says Peter wept bitterly. What happened? Cynicism. His hope was dashed to shreds. Okay, now I'm looking around the room. And everybody in this room has a story. And you put all your eggs in a basket. Maybe it was marriage. 
Maybe it was having kids. Maybe it was a political leader or a job. Or a friend or a loved one. Maybe it was a church. And it all got crushed. Everybody in the room has been let down. Everybody's been hurt. We all have that in common. You're in the right place. Because Peter wrote this epistle by inspiration of God for us today. Peter said, you know what? I screwed up. I put everything behind that guy and the Romans beat the daylights out of him. I'm going fishing. At least I know that when I put a net in the water, fish come out. I'm done with this whole kingdom of God. I quit. And he goes fishing. They fish all night, catch nothing. Jesus has been crucified. And in his death, all of Peter's hope is gone. Worthless keys, the business is shut down. You have keys to a business that no longer is operating. Jesus is dead. Resurrected Christ. Shores of Galilee, cooking fish like we studied last week. Peter's fishing all night, doesn't catch anything. Jesus says from the shore, cast the net on the right side. They do. Fish so many that they can't even haul it in. Peter realizes God's alive. Puts on his coat, jumps in the water, swims to the shore. And what Peter's saying is, I want to tell you something, everybody. I wrote this letter for you. I wrote this letter for you, and this is what I want you to hear in the letter that I wrote to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our God is alive. Your hope is dead. The world's hope is dead. Our God is alive. What does that mean? That means this. The Bible is the most amazing book on the face of the earth. You can dismiss it. You can take your comparative religion class in some community college and write it off because you're a stupid idiot. Serious. You haven't done your homework. Open it and read it. 66 books of the Bible written by over 40 different authors over a span of 10,000 years and cover to cover doesn't contradict itself once. It speaks beyond the space-time continuum. Prophesied that Jesus would be crucified a thousand years before crucifixion had been invented. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He'd be born of a virgin in Bethlehem. How many people have even been born in Bethlehem, let alone from a virgin? You know what the odds of that? There's over 3,000 prophecies pertaining to Christ. Just the eight big ones. Covering the entire state of Texas, three feet deep, silver dollars, painting one red, throwing it somewhere in Texas, parachuting a blind man in. He can walk the whole state and reach for one silver dollar. He reaches down, picks it up, and it's the red one. That's for eight of the over 3,000 prophecies being fulfilled. And you're telling me that you're dismissing this book. You haven't done your homework. You see, it's a living hope. And I got to tell you something. You know what proves the Bible to be real? Yesterday, I did a wedding. No, no, day before yesterday, I did a wedding. And I always make a joke. When I officiate weddings, nobody listens to me. Especially the bride and groom. They're like, 
And I'm like, oh, she's so pretty. Look at her. She's just lovely. Oh, I know. Okay. Nobody listens at a wedding, but at a funeral. I don't care if you're an atheist or an agnostic. It doesn't matter. You're listening. Here's why. We all have it in common. We're all dying. And the world doesn't have any answers. My greatest enemy time I'm dying I try to stop it and I can't there's a very wealthy businessman in this area I won't say who he is very wealthy he has an entire floor of a major hospital that he's paid to reserve that if he's anywhere in the United States or the world and he has some sort of an ailment they can fly him in and that whole room is reserved for him to keep him alive But guess what? Our greatest enemy is death. It's a great equalizer. Rich, poor, young, old, middle. Comes as a thief in the night. Don't know the day nor the hour. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. And here's why everybody listens. I do not want to serve a God... I do not want to serve a God or submit my life to a hope or a God that isn't big enough to conquer my greatest enemy. And my greatest enemy is death. And when Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, here are the keys. Those keys were what Jesus said to John in the book of Revelation. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus said, I have overcome sin and death. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia wrote these things, says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the keys of David who opens that no one can shut and shuts and no one opens. When he said to Peter, I am going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The picture to me is this. We put our hope in a lot of things. But I love what Isaiah says. I was doing my morning devotion, and these are things that totally floored me in, in relation to God. Because the question is this. Why do we die as human beings? Why do we die? Now you want to dismiss the Bible, don't you? Well, don't do that so quick. I mean, if you just read the first three chapters, you're going to have an answer as to why we die. We were created. We fell. And then the next chapters all the way to the end is about how we're redeemed and saved from death. This is why we're here. 
This is how we got the sin condition and the death. And this is how we overcome sin and death. I got to tell you, that is a book I would like to get a hold of. I have. I want to know why everybody dies. And is there a hope that goes beyond the grave? God said of himself in Isaiah, but now thus says the Lord who created you and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you and I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I'm the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. He said in Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. He said in Isaiah 44, Thus says the Lord, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Do not fear nor be afraid. I have told you from that time and declare it. You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? No, there is not, not one. And finally, Isaiah 45, verses 9 and 22. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Shall the clay say to the one who forms the clay, what are you making? Look to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then finally, the picture to me that sums it all up in its greatest capacity is found in John 3. John 3. There's this guy named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, which means teacher. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do the things you do unless God is with him. Jesus said, and most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, born again? By the way, that's not a term Christians came up with. That's a term in the Bible. Born again? What? Nicodemus was confused like many of you have heard it for the first time or have heard it and didn't understand it. Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can a man be born when he's old? I mean, I'm looking out of the room. It'd be tough for every single person here to get back in the womb. How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is confused. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say you must be born again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you don't hear a sound of it, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And this is what he says in verse nine. Nicodemus answered and said, how can these things be? Better translated, what? I, I I don't understand. Can you dial it down a little bit, put the cookies on the bottom shelf? Because I don't, I don't get it. People say the Bible's too complicated. It's not complicated. The Bible is deep, but it is very simple. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't get this? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify to what we have seen, and you don't receive our witness? If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
Nicodemus, you have got to put on your thinking cap and grasp this. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. What, Nick, what Jesus is saying, you're looking at him. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, wait a minute, everlasting life? Wait, 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 wait. Okay, I'm getting this. You're saying you've overcome death? Mm. Jesus says further, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now pay attention. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn you. Get that out of your thick skull. You know why he came? Because you're already condemned. You have no hope. They're going to take you to the gallows. Last meal. In and out burger. Clogged artery. Bye-bye. I don't know what it is. For me, it'd be Geno's. I love that place. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nod, nod. But listen, we're already condemned. What is a man condemned? They have no hope. There's no chance for appeal. You're not getting another trial. You are dying and the clock is ticking and the governor's not calling. So we're already condemned. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to forgive the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Almost finished. Almost finished. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Listen to this part. This is cool. But he who does the truth comes to the light. Does the truth comes to the light. That doesn't mean you do everything that's good. Everyone in the room is a screw up. That just means you're honest about it. Get it? Confess it, he'll forgive it. But be honest about it. You walk in the light as he is in the light, confessing your sins one to another, that the deeds may be clearly seen, and then God will move in your life. And here's where we conclude this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. All right? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. What if I were a judge? Okay. I were a judge. And we have somebody here who murders somebody else. Okay. This person murdered this person. And this person's family is in the front row of the court chambers because their loved one was murdered by this person and they want justice. Right? Wouldn't you? Heck yeah. And I'm the judge. And I say, I'm going to have mercy on you. You deserve the death penalty. But I'm going to let you go. 
You guys good with that? I may be merciful, but I'm not just. God is completely just and he's completely merciful. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. So if I'm going to let that guy off, who's going to die in his place? Because that's what he deserves. That's justice. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We're all on death row. Jesus Christ went and died in our place. Justice has been served. You are not getting what you deserve. You deserve death. You now have life. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hard to fathom. But you know what it does to the man or the woman who's been forgiven much? They love much. There's two options in this world. Tell God to get lost or realize you are. And you need him. When you tell God to get lost, you have no mercy and your hope is a dead hope. You know why you have no hope without God? Because you can't beat your greatest enemy. You're dying. You're dying. And Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and life more abundant. When I came to the Lord, and I gave my life to the Lord, I realized a couple of things. One is I was scared of death. Two, I knew that there were things that were in my life that he wanted to get rid of. And I had to be willing to give those to him. I've walked with the Lord for over 20 years. I'd like to say that I'm sinless. I'm not. The longer I walk with him, the greater sinner I realize myself to be. In me and my flesh dwells no good thing. The only good thing in Rob McCoy is Jesus Christ. But I will say this, the more I yield and let him live, the more people want to be around me. I'm a nicer person when God is living in me. When I take over and say, you know, I'm not banking on you today. I'm going I'm to take it from here. My wife is like, did you not have your time with the Lord this morning? Kids are like, what's wrong with dad? Is he alive again? But when Jesus is in my life, I'm very generous, I'm very thoughtful, I'm very kind. When Rob McCoy is in charge, I am the rudest, most selfish, most self-centered, self-consumed human being on the face of the earth. I got you beat. And when Rob McCoy is in charge, life is shallow and void of purpose, and it's hard to get up in the morning. And the things I find myself getting into is Rob McCoy, leave me empty. But when Jesus is operating in my life and I'm yielded to him and I'm operating in the living hope, everything I do has eternal significance. Today, God is extending to you a living hope. And that hope is found in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. Death couldn't hold him. He rose from the grave Peter saw him on the shores of Galilee and Peter wrote the epistle to say, I had lost everything and then I realized I had gained it all because Jesus is alive. Are you tired?
Are you sick of this world? Are you cynical? Are you jaded? Are you desperate? Jesus says to you, He speaks to you directly. He says, listen to me. I want you to come to me, Jesus says. All you who are burdened and heavy laden. And I've come to give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'll take your sins and I'll give you my life. And I'll give you a living hope. And you're going to be a person that you always wanted to be. Because in me is the fullness of joy. And here's the secret. People are going to like to be around you. Even though they don't like the God you serve, they love who you are when he's in you. Amen? I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive the Lord. The way I'm going to do it is, we're going to close our eyes, bow our head, and you're going to do it the same way I did it when I was new to the Lord. A preacher said that if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, and Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And that's what the scripture says. It's out of the book of Acts. And I thought to myself when the preacher said that, I thought, oh, that means if I raise my hand, I'm going to have to stand up and say with my mouth, I'm a Christian, and everybody see that? I'm st-. No, 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 no. Jesus said, if you profess me before man, I'll profess you before my Father in heaven. And I make it real simple for you. The gospel is simple to receive, though it costs Christ everything. And the way we do it here, it's an act of faith. Your head is going to be bowed. Your eyes are going to be closed. I'm going to say, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you realize that you're a sinner that needs a Savior? You've heard Isaiah. You've heard the message. Do you want to receive Christ as your Savior? If the answer is yes, all I ask you to do is open your eyes, raise your hand, and look at me. I'm not going to make you come up and do a, a jig. I just want you to make a profession of faith. You and me and the Lord, we're good. And from that moment on, God will take it from there. So let's try that now. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your word. As we've read this morning, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Lord, we came in here with a false hope. We came in here cynical and jaded and we're tired. Man has let us down, marriages, family, children, jobs. But God, we want a living hope. You qualified this. This is more significant than anything we've ever heard. And just like Nicodemus, we know that we must be born again. Not born of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. We're already, in, we're already condemned. We're dying. We're on death row. But you've come that we might have life and life more abundant. And if we believe in our heart and confess with our tongue, Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We will live. And God will give us everlasting life. Whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, now we're going to have an opportunity to exercise our will by receiving Christ. And as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you right now to raise your hand and look at me. Now's the moment. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anyone else? Awesome. God bless you. I see you back there. Praise the Lord. That's great. See you over there. Amen. You can put your hands down. It seems so simple what just took place. But the reality is, this was an act of the will of these men and women to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life and save me. 
I recognize that my hope is a dead hope, but in you, my hope is alive. So Lord, for those by an act of their will have received you, I pray your blessing upon them. We thank you that they're new creatures in Christ, that he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. We pray that you would give them a supernatural love for your word, ground them, strengthen them in this new walk. And we rejoice with the angels in heaven when the Bible says that when one sinner gives her heart to the Lord, the angels in heaven rejoice. And so we rejoice with them now in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Let's clap for those folks. Give the heart to the Lord.